This podcast contains explicit material that may not be suitable for all listeners. For those of you brave enough to stick around, enjoy the show. Welcome to the We Still Booze Podcast, brought to you by WideRightNattyLight.com, your one-stop Iowa State online blog shop. Throw me the bootleg and I'm gone. Then I take a few steps and I keep left and the people take a deep breath and I'm up in your end zone. 816 boys, we reppin' connected with Iowa State. Play out a position. Welcome to another edition of the Wide Right Natty Light Podcast. This is Austin hosting tonight. Uh, before we get started, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, leave us a five-star review, make some comments uh, on the blog here. At, as the time of recording, uh, Iowa State here sits at 13-6, and 5-3 and three in the Big 12. Uh, and we're going to preview tonight just a little bit of a break from conference play uh, with the Big 12 SEC Challenge firing up on Saturday. Iowa State will travel and play Vanderbilt this Saturday. Vanderbilt will be going into there at 9-11, 3-5 in the SEC. So we thought we'd have a chat um, with Adam Sparks, uh, Vanderbilt beat reporter for the Tennessean. Adam, how are we doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing real good. Good to be on. Hey, Adam, I think Iowa State fans can kind of relate to uh, those, those gut-wrenching close losses. And uh, Vanderbilt had a, a close one of their own the other night, didn't they? Yeah, the uh, the Arkansas game, they led, uh, Vandy led by, I think it was 11 with about uh, four minutes left in that one. Uh, it, it, it looked to be over. There wasn't really any reason to think that Arkansas was going to get back in that game. Um, and Vandy just blew it. Uh, now, Vandy has blown a couple of these this year. Uh, Vanderbilt's had eight games. Uh, eight of their 20 games have been decided by six points or less. Uh, they've only won two of those eight games. So if the score is close and it's going to be decided in the last couple of minutes, uh, Vandy has not performed well in those type of games. But this was the worst one. They didn't rebound the ball well. Uh, they uh, the, the, Their offense kind of got uh, flat in the last two or three minutes. And what really cost them was two late turnovers in, in the game. They uh, they had one ball just kind of ricochet off of a – off a player's leg, I think it was their point guard, rallied the chance. They ended up in a layup on the other end, and then they fell into some, some full-court pressure and threw the ball away, uh, which gave up another uh, – what ended up being the game-winning basket or, or free throws, actually. So um, big mistakes late in the game, and, uh, and they've done that a few times this year, been in games but not been able to finish them off. Well, it should be interesting if it comes down to the wire on Saturday because Iowa State's had some troubles of their own closing out games here recently. They've they've actually finished them out, but uh, it, it definitely wasn't smooth sailing. But we'll get to that here in just a little bit. I think the first thing that comes to my mind uh, when I think of Vanderbilt basketball is uh, watching on TV and, and just how odd the uh, the court is compared to to others, where the the benches are on the baseline compared to the sidelines. Can you describe for for our fans maybe what a what it's like watching a game inside that that gymnasium? Yeah, it's peculiar. Uh, it's been that way since the arena was built. Uh, I think back in the fifties. Uh, the theme of every team that comes in, especially non conference teams that come in, is always how how odd the setup is. Uh, so Iowa State uh, and Vanderbilt both will be 
their their benches are on the baseline, opposite baselines. Um, and so the coach will, uh, head coach can walk back and forth on one side of the baseline in front of us. And this, a new feature that was added last year was the coach's box was extended halfway up the sideline or, or about a third up the way up the sideline. So uh, head coach can go up and down the baseline or half of the baseline all the way to the goal. And then he can go around the corner and up the sideline to about the end of the three-point line. Uh, it's it's odd looking, especially because uh, you'll look out there sometimes and there's just a coach by himself, no bench, no assistant coach, uh, no scores table or anything, just one coach out in the middle of the floor um, in what is a, an enormous space uh, of out-of-bounds, him just standing there coaching on his own. It, it looks strange, but... Vandy people are used to it. Uh, a lot of times what you'll have is the opposing team, the visiting team, will have a little bit of an issue. Once they cross midcourt, the point guard will kind of have to be used to turning backward to get any instructions from the coach and look behind him. And when you do that, you got to make sure that you protect the ball. So it, it's an adjustment. It's not the easiest place to shoot in either. It's pretty spacious. Um, you know, there's uh, the, the stands behind the goal. Uh, go really high up, and so it it's it kind of has the feel of the of the rim kind of floating out in space. It's a little hard to to orient yourself sometimes. And for fans, the fr- uh, the first handful of rows are dropped down below uh, the floor. So if you're in the first two or three rows, uh, you're at eye level with the, with the shoes, the sneakers of the players. So that's always an odd thing. I'm on press row. And I kind of look at the player's knees if if you took my eye level all the way across. So it, it's a lot to get used to. Uh, it's one of the many reasons why Vanderbilt has been really good at home over the years. Uh, it's something that other SEC teams really, really dislike. In fact, the, the coach's box being extended up the sideline last year was kind of a straw poll vote of other SEC coaches. They had pitched enough of a fit over this. That uh, that they kind of outvoted Vanderbilt in the conference to, to finally get that change. It altered some, but it's still peculiar. That's interesting. So, how do do players still have to report to traditionally report into the game at at midcourt by a scores table? Do they still report that same way, or do they report from the baselines? Is there a scores table down there? Uh, the, the, so there's a scores table uh, that's you know kind of even with the the, fir- the first row in the stands. So the scores table is essentially dropped below the floor. So the desk level of the table is is level with the floor. So you'll have uh, if you, if a, if a player wants needs to check in, he'll leave the baseline, jog around the corner of the court, and then crouch down uh, in front of the scores table. Which is, is essentially he's he's almost sitting on top of the scores table. So, uh, again, it's something that, that that visitors always look at a little odd, but uh, but it takes them a full game to get used to it. Well, Vanderbilt had some success under Kevin Stallings. Uh, he leaves for Pitt, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, now in, in comes Bryce Drew. Uh, how does this? How does his style of play uh, differ from what Vanderbilt fans were used to under Stallings? Well, it's been an adjustment. Um, you know, th- there was kind of an odd roster left for him because what he inherited was a team that did not have a single traditional point guard with any game experience. They have a freshman 
uh, Peyton Willis, who's a point guard, and he started part of the year. He'll most likely come off the bench, though, against Iowa State. He's done that a few games. The starting point guard is most likely going to be Riley Lachance. Uh, he's actually a shooting guard playing out of position. Uh, but So this, this team was left without a true point guard with experience. It was left without a lot of size. I mean, there, there's some size, and their best player perhaps is a uh, – a seven foot one uh, guy, Luke Cornett, uh, but he's more of a stretch four. Uh, they had two two players that went in the first round of the draft this past year: center Damian Jones and uh, and point guard Wade Baldwin. So they lo- lost a lot of talent. It was going to be kind of an odd roster, no matter who was the coach. But going from Kevin Stallings to Bryce Drew, the offense changed in that Bryce Drew is more of a dribble drive put the ball on the floor and get to the rim type guy where Kevin Stallings was more uh, look for players that catch the, kind of the catch-and-shoot type players, not guys that, that spend a lot of time with the ball on the floor. So they've adjusted a little bit there, um, but we even saw what they were running early in the year offensively changed around Christmas. And now they have sort of a hybrid of what Kevin Stallings ran last year and what Bryce Drew wants to run now. It's been – if you really look in pockets of three or four games at a time this year, the offense has changed a little bit each time because the coach wants to do one thing, but his personnel is built for something completely different, and they've tried to find a happy medium between the two. Defensively, it's probably been a bigger issue because Bryce Drew wants to run a lot of man defense, but he usually has to fall back into a zone. Um, they just they have some liabilities on defense. They have some guards that – either young or inexperienced or, like I said, playing out of position. Uh, they've been liabilities guarding the ball. They have uh, they have one really good experienced big man, Cornette, uh, and they want to keep him out of foul trouble, so they try to go to a zone for that. But that zone has left them uh, in some bad spots late in games when they've given up layups, given up an open lane. And it's just it, – all around it's just an odd fit of coach – to, to to the personnel he has. That'll be fixed next year or the one after that, but, but right now it's just kind of a square peg, round hole. Iowa State fans can relate a little bit to a new coach coming in and kind of changing the, the style that they've been accustomed to with Steve Frome uh, still wanting to play with good pace, yet more of a defensive-minded coach uh, and maybe not running some of the same sets that Fred Hoiberg is running. What do you think is, is a fair t- timeline for fans to give a new coach that comes from the mid-major level uh, to get his system and his players in and get things running? Well, I think it depends on, uh, again, what what level of adjustment there is. If you're going from the same type of coach, uh, you know, year two, you need to show a pretty good amount of progress. But uh, if you're if you're making kind of a hard left turn, which is what Vanderbilt's case has been, completely different personality in the coach, uh, different offense, somewhat different defense, and a lineup that's got some talent to it, but it's not its, it's not the, necessarily the type of players that Bryce Drew would have uh, recruited. So I think, I think a lot of the circumstances uh, can dictate how long you give a coach. But if you're going from a mid-major to a major, uh, I think you've, you've, you, you kind of give most coaches a pass within reason in year one. Um, because there's so many variables that could go wrong in, in changing a coach. And then I think year two, you got to show some progress. Year three, you need to kind of have it figured out. Uh, you know, basketball is, is not football. But basketball, you can recruit two good players and, ter- and 
turn a team around. It, it doesn't take, you know, rebuilding the entire offensive line or changing from a, you know, changing from a pro style to a spread. It, you, you, you should be able to recruit a couple of good players and be able to make a mediocre team good within a couple, three years. You mentioned Cornette several times here so far. Uh, Ken Palm has him as a, a 7-1, 250-pound senior. <laughs> is is that who Iowa State fans should be keeping their eyes on? Or who who's maybe the biggest threat offensively for this Vanderbilt team? Well, the, their top two scores, I guess, would be the ones that would stick out to me in a scouting report. Uh, yeah, Luke Cornette is uh, – he's – He's the hardest uh, matchup for opponents usually because he is seven one. Um, he's pretty agile for a seven one guy. Um, he, he's two years ago. I remember there was a stat that he had the highest three point percentage of of any player of six eight or taller in the country. Uh, he's a very good uh, three point shooter uh, at seven one. So he's he's really a stretch four, not a five, but he's he's playing more of the five, the center position. Uh, they think he's got a chance to get drafted uh, just because of that that sky that 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 size and skill set the the mixture of the two is his father was an NBA player and an all SEC player for Vanderbilt back in the 80s Frank Cornette um, so Luke Cornette is the is the hardest matchup because you've got to have you, you got to guard him with some size because he's seven one but you've also got to be prepared to step out 25 feet and guard the three-pointer, or he'll take them, and he's as good shooting the three as he is the two, just percentage-wise. Um, the other one is Matthew Fisher-Davis, the team's leading scorer. Uh, he's a he's a streaky shooter. Uh, the last couple of years, he's kind of been their, uh, their quick points type guy, uh, either starting or off the bench, guy that can come in and just knock down three or four straight three-pointers. Uh, he's now their leading scorer and more of a – a uh, uh, long minutes go-to guy, um, and he can score in a lot of different ways. But where opponents need to be uh, wary of him is at the three-point line because he can he can light it up in a hurry. And uh, you know Vanderbilt, mo- they're 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 one of the few teams in the country that have scored more points off three-pointers than two-pointers uh, as a team, and. So when they're playing well, they're shooting more threes and they're shooting a higher percentage of threes than to making a higher percentage of threes. And so they've done that a number of games this year. And, and Fisher Davis and their other guard, Riley Lachant, who shoots at nearly 55% from three, those are the two guys that kind of get, get hot and get them going from the three-point line. You may have already answered this next question here with your last last couple of thoughts there, but – uh, what would a Vanderbilt win look like then, in your opinion? What would they have to do uh, to beat Iowa State on Saturday? Well, they're going to have to they're going to have to make a lot of threes. Uh, you, you hate to rely on just one thing, but that's what they do, and that's what they can do well any game. Um, any starting five or any rotation of five players, just about anybody they put on the floor. Uh, is a is an above average to really good three point shooter. So if they're making threes, if they're making threes at a forty, uh, then they have every reason to think they can win the game. That's one thing. On the other end, they're just going to have to get consecutive stops. Uh, even in games when they've scored a lot, when they've shot it well, and they've gone on on kind of these scoring sprees, that it still hasn't done them much good because they just have not been able to get stops. That they've 
you know, they had a game against Kentucky a couple weeks ago where they scored up in the 80s and hit a lot of threes. And all they needed to do was just get a stop, maybe back-to-back stops, and they could have won that game. And they kept on giving up layups. So, um, you know, if, if they're not going to stop Iowa State, especially in the last four minutes of the game, I don't think they have much for prayer. they got to hit shots. they got to hit. They got to make consecutive defensive stops late in the game. Where do you think uh, specifically Iowa State could expose Vanderbilt, either on the offensive side or the defensive side of the ball? Well, I think if uh, I think on the flip side, if if Iowa State defends the three well, um, because Vandy has not shown this year that they can consistently get inside the the three point arc and score uh, at, at a regular clip at a consistent basis. So a lot of teams lately, late in the season now, have uh, have been chasing shooters, have been pushing shooters out further and further, and, and giving up the paint. Um, if Iowa State does that, I'm sure they'll they'll try to do that. They'll try to defend the three-pointer and make Vandy beat them off two-pointers in the paint. If they can successfully do that, I think they have a pretty good chance to win the game because Vanderbilt has just not shown that they can they can play a full 40 minutes of of two-point basketball, of playing inside 20 feet. I think Iowa State needs to do that and really just stick offensively with what they've been. I mean, when I look statistically at Iowa State, they're one of the best in the country at – uh, very few turnovers, turnover turnover margin, really good assist-to-turnover ratio. And if they can keep that up, uh, that's going to bode well for them because one thing Vanderbilt has struggled doing this year is turning defense into offense. I mean, especially at the college level, you've got to be able to get some steals, force some turnovers, and get easy baskets on the other side, transition offense. And Vanderbilt has, has really, really had some issues turning good defense into offense. If Iowa State protects the ball like they have and keeps turnovers low, uh, I think they're going to get the type of score that they want. I want to shift gears a little bit more to the SEC conference as a whole. There's been several uh, prominent names make their way into the SEC, uh, thinking of Frank Martin, uh, one. Um, Trying to say, uh, Avery Mississippi Johnson State, ben Alabama. Yep. yep, yep. Ben Howland, I think, uh, came mm-hmm. in there as well. Mississippi State, right? Uh, do you think yep. the SEC is improving as a conference uh, compared to where they've been, where it's been, you know, Kentucky and then everyone else? Um, honestly, I don't think yet. I don't think they're there yet. Um, I think there's the potential to be there pretty quickly, and. Like I mentioned before, you can you can you can fix a basketball program pretty quickly with just a couple of players, uh, but I, I don't think they're there yet. Uh, it's still very top heavy, and by top heavy, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's Kentucky and everybody else. Um, I think that uh, you know I think the bottom third has got to come up, and I think the middle third really has to come up. Uh, there's not it seems like there's not really a top third of the SEC, and what I mean by that is there's not a upper tier of teams that you feel like can get to the Sweet 16 or better every year or most years. You feel that way about Kentucky. And, and by the way, Kentucky obviously is the cream of the crop, but Kentucky could get to the Final Four this year or Kentucky could get put out in the second round of the tournament. It, it's going to be that way any year when you have a lot of really, really talented yet inexperienced freshmen. And so – Kentucky has high hopes, as they do every year, but I don't really know what you go to beyond that. Um, 
you know, Florida looked like a pretty good team, but Vanderbilt beat them last week. And Vanderbilt right now is not a very good team. Um, Arkansas is a pretty quality team if you look at RPI. Um, Vanderbilt should have beat them uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, South Carolina is still living with kind of the tag that they had last year of a team with a really good record but not as good as what their record shows. Uh, And so I think you've got uh, a lot of issues throughout the conference of teams that are – are, are getting there, but they're not quite there yet. And I think until you get more teams in Kentucky to really be there and to show like they can they can get to a Sweet 16, they can get to an Elite Eight and feel feel pretty positive that they can get there, I think the SEC is still going to struggle. I mean, it's, it's a football conference that has still not found its footing in basketball lately. What do coaches in the, in the SEC – think of the the Big 12 SEC challenge and and maybe more specifically how it's been moved into the middle of conference play on a Saturday in January? I think it's odd. Um, I I mean, I understand the point of it. Uh, You you want kind of a marquee day um, and you want something that's different than conference. I mean, you you know, the thing a lot of times with, I think, both the Big 12 in the SEC is you're trying to distinguish yourself uh, in two football conferences beyond football. I mean, obviously there's good, there's good basketball in both conferences, but they're football leagues and you're trying to make things on the basketball side be special. And that's, that's the thinking here, I know, but I think one problem you have is, you know, you already, you already know the matchups well in advance and you're kind of flipping a coin or, or just crossing your fingers that these are going to be good matchups. I mean, Vanderbilt-Iowa State could have been a really good matchup. It ends up being an okay matchup. You know, Iowa State's got got a got an RPI. I think they could go somewhere and get on the bubble um, or already on the bubble. But Vanderbilt is not what Vanderbilt has been in past years. So you look at this back in August or September and you can say, hey, this may be a pretty good matchup. You get, you get now and it doesn't look quite as good. But I don't know what you do to fix that, but um, – but right now it's just it's 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 two conferences that I think you're trying to figure out a marquee event. I don't think they figured it out quite yet. One last question for you, Adam. I know some Iowa State fans are headed down uh to Nashville to catch the game and, and some sightseeing. Where's a where's a good place or two to go before the game and, and get some, some food and maybe a couple couple brews? Well, uh I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um, Rotiers, which is kind of a sports bar, uh, just to just kind of across the street from Vanderbilt's campus. Uh, uh, Rotiers is known for its French bread cheeseburger. That's what you're supposed to get if you go there. Get a French bread cheeseburger. Uh, but but my favorite and, and one of the favorites in town, uh, well, two of them, it's the hot chicken. And If you come to Nashville, you're supposed to eat hot chicken. Prince's is one of them. I, I, I like Hattie B's. You just Google uh, Google hot chicken in Nashville, and you'll get a few different ones. But that's the top two that you'll get: uh, hot chicken and uh, and some greasy uh, greasy food along with it. You go to Hattie B's, you get the fried chicken, but you also get the the pimento uh, mac and cheese. That's that's my recommendation. Well, you got me hungry again now, so I might have to. I might have to see uh, with my friends how that how that turns out for them next time in Nashville. I'll have to take your recommendation on that so say adam uh one last where can we catch your catch your work maybe on twitter or or following for some of your game previews before saturday 
Sure. Uh, all my coverage is on Tennessean.com, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Spark. Very good. Well, we appreciate you taking the time tonight to, to preview the Iowa State Vanderbilt game on Saturday and maybe a little bit of the, the Big 12 SEC uh, challenge, if you will. Uh, look forward to uh, possibly talking to you in the future if they maybe get matched up again. All right, good deal. Good to be on. All right, that was Adam Sparks from the from the Tennessean. He's the Vanderbilt beat reporter uh, visiting with us tonight. Uh, that's it for tonight. So if you have any, any comments, questions, or concerns, don't be afraid to leave us a review on iTunes or on the blog. Uh, as always, we appreciate you listening. This is Austin signing off.